Father, we praise you as our Creator God, who reigns over all through your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you as a God who has spoken in many ways and at many times, and who has spoken now definitively and finally through that Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we are so eager now to open our Bibles and to consider Him. And we pray that as we do, that we would be moved to deep worship and obedience to Him, love for Him, and with all the many voices around us speaking and calling us to to believe different things and to do different things, that we would be we would be moved deeply to love and believe and obey Jesus above all. We pray for your help in this and we ask for it in His name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. How many times just today do you think someone has sought to persuade you? You know, it it happens almost every time we communicate with someone. Someone speaks to you, they want you to believe what they say. And the vast majority of the time, they want you to believe unto action. I wonder how many of us this morning... Had someone in our home say something like, it's time to get ready for church. That's not a command. That's a statement. It's a statement that someone expected someone else to believe unto action. Believe and do. And We, we do this when we speak. We, we are the, the, the subjects of this when other people are talking to us. Voices calling us to believe and do. We are a voice in others' lives calling them to believe and do. This is happening all the time. Political parties do this. Advertisers do this. World religions. Documentarians. Hate to break it to you. Maybe you've already jumped this fence. But documentarians, they're not not just objective fact finders and presenters. But they, they want you to believe something and do something. Social, moral, cultural movements, they want to persuade us to believe and do. Almost every tweet, snap, insta, be real, is presenting something to be believed, and in many cases, something to be done. Behind most of these voices is a worldview, many of them conflicting with one another, and they require the, the, the hearers in this cacophony to choose. To whom will I listen? Perhaps a more fundamental question is, how will I choose to whom I will listen? And These are consequential questions. What what a gift in the midst of all of this to be reminded that God is a God who speaks. His identity alone should make Him the preeminent, preeminent voice among all others. And the author of Hebrews teaches that not only should we listen to God who has spoken at many times and in many ways, but 
God has spoken finally in one definitive way superior to all other modes of His own revelation. He has spoken in His Son. God's revelation in His Son should be so prominent in the ears, minds, and hearts of those who have faith in Him that it drowns out all the voices of the crowd. We should believe and follow Him. With that in mind, I call you to stand with me. We're going to read the first four verses of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 1. Reads, long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You may be seated. This opening passage is something like a prologue to the whole book, and its main thrust is the main point of our sermon this morning, and it's the first point in your notes, which is that God has spoken in a son. God has spoken in a son. God speaks, and in former days, He spoke in many different ways at many different times, through the prophets to the fathers, by prophets. The author means all the Old Testament writers. And these different ways of communication, that they refer to various genres of Scripture that we find in the Old Testament. We've got narrative, law, poetry, prophecy. It refers also to various modes of revelation we find in the Old Testament. Dreams, visions, theophanies, these times where God Himself appears And then there are these various persons and institutions that the author of Hebrews himself is going to return to later in this book. There's the Old Covenant, the tabernacle, the law, the priesthood, the sacrifices. God spoke, He revealed truth in these many different ways, in many different times, through the prophets to the fathers, to these Old Testament saints. And it seems that the author is highlighting in these first two verses, actually the first verse and a half, what we might call discontinuity between God's former revelation and what He calls His last day's revelation. Because for each of these, verse, each of these phrases in verse 1, there's a contrasting phrase in verse 2. So, He long ago spoke versus in these last days He's spoken. He spoke to the fathers, but now to us. He spoke at many times and in many ways by the prophets, but now He's spoken by His Son. That is, there's there's discontinuity. In God's recent speaking, there's something different, something new. But it's not just something new and different, but it's something that's superior. There's a couple of reasons that we would say that this This revelation is superior, and both of these reasons are contained in the phrase, 
by his son. It's more literally, actually, in a son. He writes, in a son. Now, why, why, why would he write a son and not the son or his son? Well, it's, it's not that there are many sons and, and this son is just one of them, but rather the author is highlighting the status of the one through whom this revelation is coming. It's not like the old revelation coming through the prophets in many different parts and in many different ways, but in these last, spoke, God, last days, God has spoken in a son. You, you may remember the, the parable of Matthew 21, the parable of the tenants. You remember the, the, the vineyard owner, first he sends servants to the vineyard, sends servants, but then finally he sends a son saying to himself, well, they'll respect my son. And the idea is that a son is worthy of more respect than a mere servant. Well, so also here. That's the first reason that this final revelation is superior. It's coming in a son. But it's, it's superior also in that, in that it comes in a son and not merely by a son. The son is not a, a mere messenger, but he is himself the content of the revelation. Unlike the prophets who came before, who said, who said over and over things, things like, Thus says the Lord, Jesus said things like, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus said things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the message. He is a messenger, but He is also the message. And that makes Him superior to all former prophets. So the author of Hebrews is, is pointing to what we would call discontinuity and how God has spoken in the last days as opposed to, to these, these former days. He's spoken in a new, different, superior way. So just in the first verse and a half, the author has laid the foundation for the argument of the entire book. The Son is superior to everything that has come before. The voices of the world then for us, they should be growing softer even now. Now, what would the author then have us to know about this Son? This revelation that comes through the Son. The Son who is superior to all. Well, he would have us to know this first of all. This is the second point in our notes. It's, it's what we call the first point of his notes. The Son is the appointed heir of all things. The Son is the appointed heir of all things. That comes in the second clause of verse 2. He writes, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. Think, think with me about who owns everything. Well, God owns everything by virtue of the fact that He created everything. We find that in Psalm 24. God created everything, and for that reason, He owns everything. And so He has the right to apportion his property as an inheritance to whomever he pleases. And so he has appointed this son, who is his final revelation, to be the heir of absolutely everything. Not some things, and not just most things, but all things. That's quite an inheritance. And it speaks to the incredible status of this son. His status rises even more when we understand that the author here is alluding to Psalm 2.8. You might write down Psalm 2.8 where God says to the Davidic king, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You could write down also 2 Samuel 7. Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7. Psalm 2 
is connected to 2 Samuel 7, where God promised to David to give him an heir to a perpetual throne. So Psalm 2 is a psalm about this promised son of David. And in this Psalm 2, God says to this royal heir of David, Hey, ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage. The ends of the earth, I'll make them your possession. In other words, I'll appoint you the heir of all things. And so what what the author of Hebrews is saying is that this son, this final revelation of God, is that Psalm 2 heir of David promised in 2 Samuel 7. Which is to say to us, he is a man. This son is a man. He's a man who will reign on the throne of David eternally as heir over all things. And and he's saying to those steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures, he's saying to these Hebrews, this son is the one that you've been waiting for all these years. He's He's the promised king from way back. He's the one you've been waiting for. Son reigns over all things. And, 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 you know, we should, we should consider this as, as we're weighing how to decide to whom we're going to listen in the midst of this cacophony in our culture. We, we tend to listen to those with status. We listen to the rich and the powerful. Sometimes we listen to people just because they're famous. We listen to people for no other reason than that they're famous. They've got no expertise, no accomplishments, Nothing whatsoever to commend their wisdom to us. And we let them tell us what to wear, what to think, what's cool, where to shop, how to talk. Should not the place of preeminence in our attention go to one who is the heir of all things, including us? The one who owns us? The answer is yes. We should listen to Him. The author wants us to see that this final revelation of God is not only the appointed heir, but but He's also the agent of creation. The Son is the agent of creation. The last clause of verse 2 reads, through whom also He created the world. And there's reason to say here also that the author is reaching back to Old Testament revelation. The creation narrative of Genesis 1 contains... First person, plural pronouns where God says, verse 26 there, let us create man in our image. We find elsewhere that, that God created all things that way. The author here is saying that all things were made through the Son. John 1.3 says it this way, all things were made through Him. Without Him was not made anything that was made. Colossians 1.16, for by Him or in Him all things were created. And that, that He is the agent of creation makes Him worthy of greater honor than the creation itself. The author of Hebrews is going to make that argument in, in, in chapter 3. He's going to say this explicitly when comparing Jesus to Moses. Hebrews 3.3, 3, there, there the writer says, For Jesus has been, created, has, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house, is worthy of more honor than the house itself. And so this is a very helpful clarifying clause in, in, in chapter 1, verse 2. The appointed heir, the son of David, is a man, but he's not just a man. He is God the Son. 
And so with just two clauses in verse 2, the author has, has reminded us that the Son is the God-man, as Pastor John said in his prayer this morning. God-man. We talked about this in Sunday school just last week. The Son is fully God. He's fully man. you got two, two natures in one person. These, these natures are unmixed, and, and neither nature dilutes the other in, in any way. This is among the greatest mysteries ever confronting the mind of humankind. A God-man. Now you think about this, when compared to the revelation given through the prophets, all of whom were mere men, how could there be something newer, more different, superior than revelation not simply by, but in the person of a God-man? Again, to whom will you listen? Now, the lion's share of the attention in the passage goes to the third truth that the author relays about this son, which is that the son is now enthroned at God's right hand. Two and a half verses on on this truth. He is now enthroned at God's right hand. He He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He now sits enthroned at the right hand of God. This is an allusion to Psalm 110.1. Now, to be, to be clear, I'm saying allusion. A-L-L-U-I-S-O-N. Not illusion. Allusion. And allusion is when someone refers to something without directly quoting it. Now, he's going to directly quote Psalm 110, later in the chapter, here he's, he's referring to it without quoting it. He made an allusion in verse 2 to, chap, to Psalm 2. Here in verse 3, he alludes to Psalm 110.1. I won't say much, much about it this morning because we'll have opportunity later in chapter 1. But it's, again, this, this Psalm 110 is, a, is another Psalm of David. And Psalm 110.1 reads this way, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And and we'll find then the author giving three reasons why the Son is now enthroned at God's right hand. Three reasons why He's enthroned and one result. Three reasons and one result. Now, just as an aside, let me call a timeout here on the sermon. You you, you might wonder, how do I know? How how do I know that, that, that all of these... These, these points that I'm giving you are what they are. How do I know that the main point of the passage is that God has spoken through His Son? And, and then how do I know that the three truths that He wants to convey are that the Son is the appointed heir of all things and the, the agent of, of creation and that He's enthroned at the right hand? And, and then how do I know that, that the, these three reasons are the three reasons for that, that enthronement? And then how do I know... That, that, that what is the result of that enthronement is the result of that enthronement. How, how do I know? How, why, why, why isn't it that, that His making purification for sins isn't the main point of the passage? How do I know? Well, if you want to know how I know, look for that on the blog this week. Okay? So I'm not going to tell you right now. But, I, but, 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 but just a little spoiler alert. I don't have a sixth sense and, and I don't have a cheat code. With, with epistles, it's just very easy to discern these things. I'm, I'm going to show you on the blog this week how I do that. I, but but I, I don't, with each one of these sermons, 
just want to go hardcore grammar nerd on you and, and explain how I know. But I'm just going to do it on the blog once, and Lord willing, then you'll just know as we go through Hebrews. Well, he knows because of this. So if you're interested, read the blog. So three reasons. The Son is now enthroned at God's right hand. First of all, it's His rightful place as the perfect image of God. It's His rightful place as the perfect image of God. Again, He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. That's not two ideas. That's one idea expressed in two ways. It's two ways of saying the same thing. Jesus is the perfect reflection, the perfect expression of the glory and image of God. Now many people would say, that this is a reference to the divinity of Christ. And I love those people. I just disagree with them. And, and, and they would disagree with me. And that's fine. This is, a, this is one of these areas where we can disagree and still be friends and worship together. But I disagree. I believe this refers to Christ as the perfect image bearer of God. Christ is the perfect image bearing representative of man as an image bearer. God intended man to serve as His image bearer on earth. Man was intended to reflect the glory of God. We're going to see this from Psalm 8 when we get to chapter 2. But what do we find in Genesis 3? Man rebelled. He failed to properly image God. And Christ, Christ then in His incarnation, He images the Father perfectly. And, and part of His imaging the Father perfectly works to save man from his rebellion. And it's into Christ's image then that we are, as believers, being restored. Now that's a theological argument for why I would say that this is not a reference to Christ's divinity, but his, in His perfect humanity, He is, is imaging God as an image bearer. But there's also a semantic argument, that is, an argument from the words themselves. This is the only place that, that these New Testament words are used. This word radiance and exact imprint. It's the only place in all the New Testament that these words are used. So if we want to know what these words mean, we actually have to look outside the New Testament. And when we do that, what we find is that these words are typically used in intertestamental writings, that is, writings between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're typically used of man as image bearers. And so the most natural way to, to understand these words as the readers of Hebrews are is reading this for the first time is to think, oh, well, he's talking about Christ as an image bearer. In fact, these two words are synonyms with the word that is used in Genesis 1.26 when God said, let us make man in our image. So just the words themselves, the most natural way to understand them in the historical context, the way they're used in extra biblical literature is as man imaging God. I would also argue from the context that this is the best way to understand this. I would, I would argue from this passage that the, this is the best way to understand just from the flow of these verses. We've already seen that the author first shows the humanity of Christ and then he shows the deity of Christ. He did that in verse 2. He said the Son is the appointed heir, human, and then he said he's the creator of the world, divine. And now he's saying the Son is the perfect image bearer, Human, and then he's going to say he's the upholder of creation here in just a minute. Divine. He's human, he's divine. He's human, he's divine. He does that in verse 2, he does that in verse 3. 
But then moving forward in the, in the, the context of Hebrews, we're going to find in chapters 1 and 2 that this idea of Christ as the perfect representative image bearer, this is the key to all of the argument in, in chapters 1 and 2. Jesus as the perfect image bearer fulfills God's plan for man and thereby redeems man, enabling man to enter the, the eternal land of promise and reign with Him. Now, again, at the end of the day, it's a point we can disagree about. We can still be friends. But, but my view, based upon all of these reasons, is that, that Jesus is enthroned, among other reasons, because He has perfectly imaged the Father in His incarnation. And I would encourage you then to think for a moment all the ways that you have failed to perfectly image God. Maybe just in the last week. The ways that you have failed in your thoughts, in your actions, attitudes. And think about the failures of those who are clamoring for your attention. Those who are saying, hey, listen to me. Believe this. Do this. Think about their failures to perfectly image God. Jesus imaged God perfectly for a lifetime, and now He does so into eternity. To whom will you listen? Second, second reason that Jesus is enthroned on high. It is His rightful place as the bearer of all things unto their intended ends. It is His rightful place as the bearer of all things unto their intended ends. The text tells us that He upholds all things by the word of His power. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now this definitely speaks to the divinity of the Son. But, but, but it's not just that the Son upholds, it's not just that He maintains in existence all things. That is true for sure. But, but the best verbs to convey that idea, that, that he, he keeps all things existing, those verbs aren't used here, but rather the verb used here is a verb for carrying, for, for burying, bearing a load from one place to another place. And, and this, this clause in verse 3 is, is super literally, He bears all things by His powerful Word. And so, so what we find then in verses 2 and 3 regarding the Son's relationship to creation, is that He's not only the agent of creation, He not only creates everything, but He carries creation to its intended goal by His Word. God the Father, think about this. God the Father has made promises according to His sovereign plan. Boldly. God God has made some some crazy promises. And he, He's not been shy about this. God has said from the very beginning, I think of, I think of Genesis 3.15, I'm going to save you, Adam and Eve. I'm going to, I'm going to send a seed to, to squash the head of the devil. That's bold. And He's made other promises all along the way. His sovereign plan, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. He continues, continues making promises in the New Testament. What is the Son's job in this? The Son's job is to take all things in existence and carry them to that goal. 
Unbelievable. And he does this by words. His word. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Son, by His powerful word, carries all things to the Father's destination. And, and so, so once again, we, we should be asking ourselves, to, to whom will I listen? The answer should be obvious. It should be more and more obvious with each word of this text. A third reason that the Son is enthroned on high is, is this. His sacrificial work as high priest is completed. His sacrificial work as high priest is completed. The text reads, After making sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, He doesn't get into it here, but He's forecasting what He's going to, what he's going to teach later. As the superior high priest... Jesus offered the superior sacrifice of Himself on the cross to cleanse the consciences of sinners and free them from sin and death. And upon His resurrection, He ascended to heaven where now He sits enthroned at God's right hand so that all who repent and trust in Him might enter the eternal land of promise. Now here's something to keep, keep in mind. And, and, and this is glorious. His sacrificial work of, of His high priesthood is completed. That's why He sat down. That doesn't mean that all his, his priestly work is finished. His continuing work of the priesthood can, is still in force, and His enthronement at the right hand ideally situates Him for it. Hebrews 7 teaches that having been raised, He always lives to intercede for those who draw near to God through Him. So his sacrificial work is completed and he sat down because of that, but he continues to pray for us even as he's seated by the Father. This God, this God-man, he lived perfectly, he died vicariously, he rose from the dead to ransom sinners from death, he ascended to heaven where he is now enthroned interceding for his people until they join him. To whom will you listen? The author gives us then, having, having told us three reasons why he's enthroned, he gives us one result of this enthronement. One result of this enthronement is that the God-man has become better than the angels, having inherited a better name than them. The God-man has become better than the angels, having inherited a better name than them. And we might wonder, how, how, how could the Son not have been eternally greater than the angels? Well, the, the eternal Son in His divinity certainly was. But the author of Hebrews is putting in front of us the God-man. And particularly in His humanity, in His humanity, in His condescension as a man, He was not greater than the angels. And that's what's going to be put in front of us in Hebrews chapter 2. The God-man for a time was lower than the angels, but having completed His incarnation work, having been raised from the dead and enthroned in the heavens at the right hand, He has become better than the angels, having inherited a better name than them. What is that name? Well, there's debate about that and there's plenty of room for friendly disagreement. I'm inclined to say that that name is Son. Son in the fullness of of, of all that it means as the God-man, as, as the, the, the son of, of David, all the promises of God, I, I believe in the context, particularly the following context of chapter 
one, as the author repeatedly refers to him as the son, the son, the son, and on into chapter three, I would say that that name is son. But but why, why bring up angels? We 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 might also wonder. Well, he's anticipating the rest of chapters one and two, which Lord willing we'll get into next time. But again, it serves to show the superiority of the son. Son is not just superiority superior or over revelation through men, but we're going to find that he is superior over revelation through angels, and he's superior over angels themselves. Now, before, before we close, uh, there's something to, to note regarding the whole passage. So let's, let's dial out a little bit. We've, we've looked almost at every phrase here, but let's dial out and look at the whole passage. The first verse and a half highlighted, uh, highlighted, remember that that word discontinuity? That is, there there was differentness between the former revelation through the prophets in many parts and in many ways and the new revelation, the superior revelation in the Son. But what I didn't bring up and what I want to bring up right now is that the next two and a half verses seem to assume what we would call continuity in some sense because... As the author describes the Son, he alludes to those Old Testament Scriptures. Did you catch that? This is kind of a weird thing that he's doing. The Son is superior to that many times in many ways by the prophet's revelation to the fathers. But then the author uses that very revelation to establish the identity of the Son. In fact, we're going to find him doing that very thing throughout the whole book. He's going to use Old Testament revelation to show that the Son is superior to the Old Testament revelation. It's, it's kind of this weird thing. So there, there is discontinuity, differentness, superior, superiority, and yet there's, there's also some sense of continuity, connection between the older revelation and the revelation of Christ. And, and so we, we want to try then to to. to grab onto a way to conceive of this. How can there be discontinuity and continuity at the same time? What's the right way to hold both of these things? Jesus is is different, better, and at the same time, somehow a continuation of these Old Testament things. Well, let's let's say that I wanted to give you a surprise. And so I hand you a jigsaw puzzle. And I say, put together the jigsaw puzzle and, and you'll figure out the surprise. And so you start to put together the jigsaw puzzle and you're putting it together, you're putting it together, and it's not obvious what it is. But by, by the way, I, I have a niece who, who, who doesn't believe in turning over all the pieces before she starts which I think makes her an anarchist. And let's say maybe you do the same thing. You don't turn over all the pieces, and so it's really hard. And it takes you a while. But eventually you get, you, you get some of it put together, and before you even finish, you, you say, well, I've got a pretty good idea then of, of what this is. There's a good bit missing, because I have turned over all the pieces. But it looks like uh, a beautiful blue sky filled with multicolored hot air balloons. And so you assume then that I'm going to take you on a hot air balloon ride. And you think, well, that'll be nice. 
because you've never been on one and your only frame of reference for what that would be like is an incomplete two-dimensional still life photo. But then that day we get into the balloon and you find that the, the reality has parallels to the photo. There's, there's, there's sky, there's balloons, there's colors. So there's continuity between the incomplete two-dimensional puzzle and the reality. But that picture cannot compare to the reality because you, you, your stomach drops as gravity pulls on you when the balloon begins to ascend into the air. And you, you did not anticipate feeling the heat of that hot air. You could feel it on your face like, like the open door of an oven. And, and as the balloon rises, you can see further and further in the distance, eventually, you, you can see for miles in 360 degrees, 360 degrees horizontally and 360 degrees vertically. It's amazing. And the wind is blowing your hair, blowing your clothes. You, you can feel the sun on your skin. And all, then all, all, all of these balloons around you, they're, they're like enormous orbs rising and falling in the sky, it gives it this, this dreamlike quality. Yes, this is like the puzzle. And it's nothing like the puzzle. God, God has spoken in, in many parts and in many ways. And, and those former parts and ways, they sought to give some sense of the coming fulfillment of God's promises. But the Son, I mean, we, we, we ought not think of Him we ought not think of Him as the last piece of the puzzle. We, we ought not think of Him as the finally completed puzzle. We, we, we ought not think of Him as, as the picture on the box that tells you what the puzzle is supposed to look like. He is not simply the right assembling of, of the many parts and, and ways. He is something far superior. He is superior because of who He is and what He does. And in both of these things, He is both grand fulfillment and superior final revelation of God. Therefore, He is worthy of our attention, faith, and obedience. You remember from last time the Christian situation? What is the Christian situation in this world? Hostility from the world. And therefore, the Christian's temptation is to shrink back from faithful discipleship. And there is this choir of voices all around us all the time seeking to make it sound reasonable to shrink back from Christ. There are many different ways that this is happening all the time. There's no way to cover a fraction of the the kinds of voices that are calling us to them all the time. Believe this. Do this. But I, but I want to give you just a few that, that, that we may be hearing right now. When, when confronted by political voices, either conservative or liberal, either offering hope or projecting doom, what will you do? These voices saying, if you would just do this, if others would just do this, everything would be better. Or if we don't correct this, 
everything's going to be doomed. Will you be taken by those voices? And so invest your life, invest your energy, invest your money, invest all your time in political activism in the hope that human institutions can change human hearts. Or will you listen to the Son who says, Come to Me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And will you invest your life in proclaiming Him, not a party? When you have a problem of the heart, and you're confronted with the voice of psychology, sociology, what will you do? These, these voices that say, you know, the problem is not what you are, what's inside of you, but rather the problem is what has been done to you. Will you be taken by that voice? Or will you listen to the Word of Christ which says, every intention of the thoughts of man heart, man's heart is only evil continually, but in Christ we have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. During this, this month of the year, and the world is screaming that homosexuality is normal and anyone who says otherwise is a bigot. What will you do? Will you listen? And, and if you experience the pull of same-sex attraction in your own heart, will you listen to voices saying to you, this is just who you are and you cannot change? Will you listen to those voices? Will you be taken? Or will you listen to the word of Christ which says, Do you not know that those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God? And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. To whom will you listen? There is this exacerbating circumstance in the midst of this cacophony of voices. Many of us have convinced ourselves, I just don't have time. I don't have time to do this. I don't have time for this. And yet we prove, I've got plenty of time to do this. Perhaps not realizing that behind the maze of endless memes and reels and videos, e e even the philosophy behind the technology itself and, and many times behind the content are worldviews saying, keep watching, keep watching, keep watching, don't believe that, believe this, and live this way. I'm not saying that having a phone or enjoying those things is, is wrong or evil, but what I am saying is that the only, way, the only way to navigate this safely, the only way to do this safely is to listen to Him by doing this voluminously and having it penetrate our minds and our hearts, letting Christ be the preeminent voice in our minds. There are other voices that may be that may be calling us, and the Holy Spirit, of course, is fully capable of revealing those to us. 
in our moment of reflection here shortly. But as we, as we enter that time, let's enter that time with, with this in mind. God's revelation in His Son should be so prominent in the ears, minds, and hearts of those who have faith in Him that it should utterly drown out the voices of the crowd. And so we should believe and follow Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the richness of Your Word. And we thank You for the content of this Word. We thank You for Your final revelation in Your Son. We pray, Father, that that Your voice in Him would be preeminent among all others, above all others. We pray, Father, that as we continue in our study of Hebrews, that that this idea that Christ is superior to all, that, that it would hang in our minds like a cloud that will not dissipate. That it would nag at our hearts as we hear other voices. Other voices calling us to believe and do. We pray, Father, that the voice of the Son would overwhelm those other voices with His, His greatness as the God-man. Your, your great and final Revelation, You're speaking to us. We pray, Father, that in those moments of having to choose to whom we will listen, it would be obvious to us that we will listen to Christ, that we would do so joyfully, that we, that we would not even listen to our own hearts, which is, which is the impulse of which is only evil continually, unless harnessed by the Holy Spirit, brought to life, Given new impulses, we pray, Lord, that you would reign over us in Christ. We would be moved to worship and obedience by these things. Lord, we need your help. We need your help to see that the greatest way to listen to you is by the intake of your word. We pray that we would take this seriously. And that it would become a, a major focus of our lives. That we would do so with joy. That we, that, we, that we would eat your word, as the prophet Jeremiah says. We would eat it and digest it. That it would become as food to us. That it would guide us. Become the overriding voice. We ask these things in Jesus' name.